Have you ever been on the receiving end of what's often referred to as the silent treatment? Perhaps you haven't been on the receiving end of the silent treatment. Perhaps you've been on the giving end of the silent treatment. And you know what the silent treatment is. That's usually when somebody is angry about one way or another in which a person has offended them. And they say, okay, in retaliation or to teach this person a lesson or for whatever reason, I'm going to give this person the silent treatment. So if they speak to me, I'm not going to respond. I'm not going to proactively seek out a conversation with them and so on. It could be a very awkward thing to be on the receiving end of silent treatment from someone. Getting the silent treatment from someone who is, say, an acquaintance, acquaintance or a co-worker, that's awkward enough. But to receive the silent treatment from someone you love can be particularly trying. I'm not endorsing the silent treatment, by the way. I don't think, a, I don't think that should be a tool in the Christian's tool belt. You don't want to go the silent treatment route. Typically when this does happen, though, it's because of some anger over some wrong. It could be an actual wrong, it might be a perceived wrong, and that's usually the cause for silent treatment. Biblically, however, it's important to know that there is a category for the people of God to feel as though God was giving them the silent treatment. To feel as though He was distant when He is not angry with them. There's a biblical category for that. There's also a biblical category for God giving the silent treatment to, say, somebody like King Saul. If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 28, you'll see a couple of examples of how God, if you will, did not respond to Saul's prayer. He gave him the silent treatment, if you will. But that's after he had spoken to him numerous times through the prophet Samuel. But that case notwithstanding, that's not the kind of silence that we see in this psalm. In fact, in this psalm, the sense is more of distance than it is of silence. A kind of lack of intervention from God when intervention is desperately needed. As I was thinking about the psalm, I thought of the uh, second movie that had come out uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia series, Prince Caspian. And if you remember, the first movie that came out, I know it wasn't the first book, it was the second book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It ends, and Narnia looks beautiful. Aslan has come to the rescue. He defeated the White Witch, and Narnia looks so beautiful. The people are so happy. And then when you go into Prince Caspian, all of a sudden things have changed. There's this group that is basically taken over. It's kind of dark, and it's gray. And you could imagine, if you were to put your feet in the shoes of the people of Narnia, you could imagine these fictional characters wondering, where is Aslan? How could he let it get this bad? Where is the intervention? And when I was reading through this psalm and preparing, I thought of that kind of thing. Because oftentimes, throughout the history of the people of God, the people of God have wondered where God is when things are getting bad and they don't get better. At least not within the time frame that the people of God would like to see. And in those moments, it could feel as though God is distant. And that's essentially where this psalm begins. We'll get into that shortly, but first let's create a little bit of context, at least literary context. This is Psalm 10. But if you remember, in the first message of to know God is to trust God in part 1, I talked about how many view Psalm 9 and 10 as having been originally viewed as one psalm together. Now, there are those who don't take that view. There are those who say, no, Psalm 9 is distinct from Psalm 10, and there are reasons to see them as separate. If you wanted to dive into those reasons, you could listen to the introduction of that message. Um, to know God is to trust God, part 1 in the exposition of Psalm 9. But as quickly as seen in this text, and we'll see as soon as we get into verse 1, there's a lament, but there's much more than a lament to this psalm. It starts off with a lament. So in verse 1, we're going to see a lament. Then in verses 2 through 11, so if you're going to see a kind of structure to the psalm, it would be this. Verse 1 is the lament. Then in verses 2 through 11, we see an extended description of the thinking of the wicked and the behavior of the wicked. Then when we get to verses 12 through 15, we see a section with petitions to God to act on behalf of the believing oppressed. And then in verses 16 through 18, we see triumphant declarations of Yahweh's kingship and the expectation slash assurance of His righteous judgment on behalf of His humble and afflicted people. 
So that's kind of the breakdown, right? Verse 1 is the lament. Verses 2 through 11, extended description of the wicked, the way they think, their behavior. Verses 12 through 15, we see some petitions for God to act. And in verses 16 through 18, triumphant declarations of God's kingship and the expectation of his righteous judgment. With that being said, let's get into the text. We begin in Psalm 10, verse 1, where we read, Why do you stand afar off, O Lord, or O Yahweh? Why do you hide in times of trouble? Now, perhaps the first thing you notice is that the language is noticeably strong. The picture painted by the words of the psalmist here. Now, again, this might have been connected with Psalm 9, so we could say then definitively in that case that David is the author. David may or may not be the author in this case because there is no superscript to this psalm. But nonetheless, this language is strong. It was as if the psalmist knowing that God is near to His people, nonetheless expresses the feeling as though the God who is an ever-present help in times of trouble was nonetheless in this moment standing afar off. That's how the psalmist felt in this very moment. Now earlier in Psalm 9, David wrote, The Lord, or Yahweh, also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And yet here he is, David, potentially, assuming David is the author of Psalm 10 or the psalmist nonetheless, here is the psalmist asking the Lord why he hides himself. You see the struggle there? The Lord will be a refuge for the oppressed. But yet in the beginning of Psalm 10, it's where are you? Why do you stand afar off? The the picture painted here is as though, this is not true, but the picture painted, the feeling that's communicated is as though God is kind of aloof and indifferent If you've ever committed that sin where you've walked by somebody who's needed help and maybe you've looked the other way so as not to make eye contact with them and you've kind of just kind of avoided interaction with them, it's like you kind of just were looking the other way. It's like you hid yourself. That's how the psalmist felt in this moment, as though God was standing far off, as though He was indifferent, as though He was hiding Himself, as though He was hiding His face from his people. So he asks the question, why do you stand afar off? Why do you hide in times of trouble? I think it's good for us to remember that this has been, and oftentimes is, the experience of God's people. Job, for instance, in Job 23, verse 9, he said, when he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. Now, if you look within the context in Job 23, just look at the verses that go before it. Look at the verses that immediately come after it. This is within the context of his suffering. It's just like, I just don't see him. I just don't know what's going on. I would love to have an audience with him. But it's as though he's hidden from my eyes. Remember the words of David in Psalm 22, quoted by Jesus upon the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And prophet Jeremiah wrote, O hope of Israel, his Savior in times of trouble. Why should you be like a stranger in the land and like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? Jeremiah 14.8 So if you ever feel like God is standing afar off amidst your times of distress and trouble, I would encourage you. If you ever feel like the light of His countenance has been hidden by clouds of painful providence, I would encourage you to know that you're not alone and you are not to be alarmed. After all, God never told you to walk by feelings, but He's told you to walk by faith. And you can hear through the ears of faith the Lord's promise, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. Going from Hebrews 13.5. And then hearing that through the ears of faith, the eyes of faith perceive His nearness. Now, as we go forward in this psalm, to create a little bit of context within the psalm, we'll see in a kind of general way some of the trouble that David has in mind. So when you hear this in verse 1, why do you stand afar off? Why do you hide in times of trouble? If you were going to say, what do times of trouble look like within the psalm? What did it look like for the psalmist in this context? Well, as we go through verses 2 through 11, you basically get an idea of what that trouble looked like, at least in a general way. So we're going to walk through these verses now. 
rather than just reading verses 2 through 11 and then offering some comments on the entirety of that description, I want to walk through this. Because as we walk through these verses, I think it will be helpful for us to see the kind of people that we are not to be. Not just the kind of people that the wicked are described to be. So in verse 2, we read the following. The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. Now again, one of the reasons why I want to walk through these verses is so that we can see and understand the description of the wicked as found in these verses. I think one of the things that many kids in this generation lack, particularly in comparison to my generation, is a robust number of cartoon villain examples of basically villains that they did not want to be like. I learned a lot as a child. I didn't grow up as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, maybe in kind of an nominal sense, but not in a real sense. But I learned a lot of the kind of person I didn't want to be by seeing cartoon villains. So if you were younger and you watched the old cartoon of Transformers, then you probably remember Starscream. And you probably remember him and you probably thought to yourself, I do not want to be a whiny opportunist like Starscream. Like, that's just not so, I just don't want to be like that. Or if you watch the cartoon, again, the cartoon version, when I was younger, if you watch the cartoon version of X-Men, then you probably know the bad guy Magneto. And you probably thought to yourself, I don't want to be that kind of guy that seeks to carve up factions of the society into, you know, into groups so as to create a kind of civil war. You, you would wish that more people watched X-Men as a cartoon when they were younger and said, I don't want to be like Magneto because we do have people in our society trying to carve up people into factions and kind of cultivate a kind of civil war. But again, you see these things and you learn from them. You say, I don't want to be like that. So let me encourage you, Christian, as you're reading through Psalm 10, as we're studying through it, you're getting a description of what you don't want to be like and the opposite characteristics that should be seen in our lives as Christians. So first here, we're told, the wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. So you'll notice that the wicked follows the path of the bully. I think Eric Lane rightly noted, like all bullies, they targeted those weaker than themselves. So if you see someone picking on someone that is weaker than them, this kind of thing, sadly, is the kind of sinfulness that often rears its head in a school setting. Like if you see that kind of thing, you are to think, I don't want to do that. That's not the kind of thing that a Christian does or that the people of God do. That's the kind of thing that the wicked do. What do the wicked do? They pick on people that are weaker than them. We see it right here. The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. They punch down, if you will. At least oftentimes. As a Christian, we know that we are to, to use language from the Psalter, Psalm 82, verse 3, we are to defend the weak. To use language from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, we are to uphold or help the weak. To use language from Galatians chapter 2, verse 10, language that is drawn within the context of the apostles, reminding the apostle Paul to remember the poor. We know that's the kind of thing that we're supposed to do as well. We're supposed to, in some way, shape, or form in our lives, remember the weak, uphold the weak, remember the poor. This then provides a backdrop, at least some of it, for the psalmist's questioning in verse 1. So why do you stand afar off in times of trouble? Why do you hide in times of trouble? What's going on? Well, the wicked are persecuting the poor. Where are you? Why aren't you intervening? It seems as though you're indifferent to this. So if you ever feel that way, you're not alone. God's not shy about that reality happening for the people of God and people of God asking those kinds of questions. We also get a little glimpse here into what drives this type of person. If you look at the text, the wicked in his pride. Pride. So what drives this kind of person? Pride. This is not the only thing that drives this kind of person, but it's one thing that drives this kind of person. Just by way of application, thinking that you are above and better than others will in some negative way affect your behavior. Right, if you just kind of live with a comparison mindset, you just kind of measure yourself up and say, hey, where do I fall in the Christian league standings? You know, if you start thinking like that, like, you know, I'm moving up in the ranks. I think I've passed her and him and them. I'm kind of, I'm moving up. You, you have been ensnared in a trap of pride that has maybe clothed itself or robed itself in some sort of pursuit of righteousness. So you don't want to do that. You rejoice in the work of God in you, but you don't pursue some sort of comparison trap type of thing. 
Here for the wicked, it was pride that was driving them to do what they did. Here it was persecute. The language in the Hebrew could be connoted as or be translated as hotly pursue. They persecuted, they hotly pursued the poor. In other words, they were like the predators and they perceived the poor to be their prey. How? In what ways? Well, we'll get some glimpses into that as we go through the psalm. But note, regardless of how pride manifests itself, pride is a root that does not bring forth any good fruit. Just gross and disgusting, rotten fruit. So we want to be on the alert against that in all of our lives. Now, in light of that, David prayed, and that's one possible way of rendering the second half of the verse. The second half of the verse could be rendered as a petition. That's how I think most of the translations render it. So we'll see it that way. It could be rendered as a statement, as a prediction as well. But we'll see it right now through the lens in which we have it here. David here says, Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. David here, presuming he's the author of Psalm 10, is praying, assuming he's praying, in light of a God-revealed way that God brings about judgment upon the wicked. We've seen this kind of thing quite a few times in our study of the Psalms already. In Psalm chapter 7, verses 15 and 16, concerning the wicked, David wrote, He made a pit and dug it out and has fallen into the ditch which he made. His trouble shall return upon his own head and his violent dealings shall come down on his own crown. Psalm 9, verse 16, in like manner, we read, The Lord, or Yahweh, is known by the judgment He executes. The wicked is snared in the work of His own hands. Meditation, Selah. So David's petition, or prediction, which is another way to read the text, is in line with God's revealed way of bringing about judgment. So often God will bring about temporal judgment upon the wicked by using their own plots to ensnare them as communicated right here in this verse. Now again, assuming this is a petition, I want you to notice something. Sometimes prayer will take the form of a beautifully and wonderfully outlined acrostic, like acts, right? A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Sometimes your prayer will take that kind of form. You'll begin with adoration, and you'll praise God for who He is. You'll confess your sins, being mindful of your frailties. Then you'll offer to God thanksgiving, and then you'll close with supplications. And sometimes prayer could take that form. But other times it could begin kind of like this psalm does, with a couple of questions, a statement about the wicked, and then maybe a prayer and a petition to God. Now, there are forms for us to follow in the Word of God. The Lord's Prayer, or what can be referred to as the Disciples' Prayer, that Jesus taught His disciples to pray. The prayers of the Apostle Paul. But I think it's helpful to look at the Psalms and see how they provide further insight into the breadth of the forms that prayer may take on a given day or in a given situation. Sometimes you just run into God's presence and you just ask some questions. You make a statement and you offer a petition and there you are in prayer. Now, the motivation for David's petition, at least part of it, appears to continue in verse 3 where we read, For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. He blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. So, immediately we see some connection, given the Hebrew word key, translated in our text as for, between the petition and what we see here in verse 3. The petition in verse 2, the statement in verse 2, um, David was saying what he did, or praying what he did, at least in part because the wicked boasts. The wicked boasts. Now, boasting can be a good thing, depending on what you're boasting in. You could boast in the Lord. You see, the psalmist do that. Psalm 32, verse 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31. Making the Lord your boast. He is my God. He is my helper. He loves me. He sent His Son to die for me. You make the Lord your boast. You can make the cross your boast. The Apostle Paul spoke of doing that in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. He talked about the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ being His boast. You could boast in the work of God in the people of God. We see Paul tell the Thessalonians that he boasted about the work of God that was happening in their lives. You could boast in your infirmities. You could say, I am weak. I, I am a lowly, weak person, but I serve an amazing and strong God. You could boast in those things. You have biblical reasons for those. But that's not what the wicked was doing here. 
the wicked was boasting of his heart's desire. Now the word for boasts here in Hebrew in its inflected form right here is halal. It could speak of praising. So the wicked boasts, he celebrates, he praises. And what does he praise? His heart's desire, his fleshly cravings, the things in which he or she delights in, or the greed that they long to see satisfied. So in other words, they have these ungodly wants, and they celebrate them. They love them. They love to talk about them. Just take for one example, for instance. I get, this, I get this example from the second half of this verse. It says he blesses the greedy. We'll speak about that in a moment. So one example of boasting, a wicked kind of boasting, would be boasting in, say, for instance, money. People can boast in money. They can boast in having it. They can boast in spending it. They can boast in earning it. They can boast in what it can do. Do you understand what money can do? do, you, do you, everybody needs money. Do you know what money can do? They can make their boast in it. They can make their boast about um, a whole bunch of things in relationship to money. I mean, boasting can be applied to a bunch of things besides money, but that would be one, for instance, of how the wicked makes his heart's desire, his praise, his celebration, his boast. Now notice here, we're told in the second line that he blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. He blesses the greedy. could possibly be rendered as the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. Because that word for bless could be rendered either way in this context. Either way, it's an outworking of wickedness. But assuming the former, as we see in our translation, as it's translated in the text, it shows the wicked's propensity for improper valuation. He blesses the greedy. In other words, he doesn't know how to form right value judgments. He doesn't celebrate, say, the suffering saint who isn't known by anyone, so to speak, in a third world country, but he celebrates the multi-billionaire who would manage to pick himself up by his bootstraps. Maybe he gives no reference to God or Christ or the God of the Bible, but look at what they've achieved. Look at what they've built. Look at what they own. Look at them. He blesses the greedy. Now, the word for blesses here has the connotation of speaking well of. The word blessed could have different connotations in different contexts. Here the idea is speaking well. He speaks well of the greedy. They're the kind of people that he looks up to, so to speak. The kind of people that he celebrates. They've achieved something. They've done something with their lives. They are successful. They basically look, in this context of this psalm, they look unstoppable. And he blesses the greedy. So what does that show? It shows his propensity for improper valuations can't really see what's really praiseworthy and what isn't. And so he blesses the greedy. And he renounces the Lord. It should be no surprise that if one blesses the greedy and celebrates things that God forbids or loves that which God hates, that renouncing or reviling or despising the Lord should not come as a surprise. One is already on that spectrum when one lovingly embraces what God forbids. So, so far, this is what you're seeing so far. So far, you've seen that the wicked is a bully. You've seen that in verse 2. You've seen that the wicked is a boaster. You've seen that in the beginning of verse 3. And you've also seen that the wicked is a poor judge of what is and isn't praiseworthy. Now, in verse 4, we continue where we read, The wicked, in his proud countenance, does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. Now, as is the case with some of the verses in this psalm, there's a question how that, as to how that first line should be read. The text before us reads, The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is, his, God is in none of his thoughts. It's possible to read the text this way as well. The wicked in his pride says he will not call it to account. There is no God is the sum of all his devices. Another commentary noted how the best sense of the verse might be, as for the wicked in the height of his scorn, God will not require. There is no God, such are all of his thoughts. Okay, now with that being said, you're basically coming at the same sort of mentality regardless. The wicked here, let's consider the meaning of the text, it appears to be something like this, that the wicked in his pride lives like an atheist. 
So if you want to take this verse and you want to kind of bundle up what it means, the wicked in his or her pride lives like an atheist. They have a kind of practical atheism that works itself out in their lives. Now the phrase, his proud countenance, connotes, sadly, how pride can often show itself in a person's facial expression. Yeah, something you want to avoid. I mean, you don't want to go judging people and saying, well, that's a proud look, that's a proud look. That, don't do that. That's for the Lord to, to do. Um, but nonetheless, it is a reality that we see set forth in the Scriptures. One of the things that God hates that we see in Proverbs chapter 6 is a haughty or a proud look. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 17. So sometimes the pride of a person can show itself in one's um, face and the way one looks at other people and so on with scorn or condescension. And it's from this place of pride that this person does not seek after God or the way it could be rendered is this person thinks God will not hold them to account. you got both possibilities here. And both are true for the wicked. The wicked are not seeking after God. They're not looking to know God better. And they don't think God is going to seek them out. That's the idea of that phrase, to hold them to an account. So they don't think God's going to hold them to an account. And they're not looking for God personally in their own lives. So regardless of their beliefs about God, they live out a practical kind of atheism. They don't seek God for wisdom or counsel or direction. They don't think that God will hold them accountable for what they do. And furthermore, as we see in the second line of this verse, God is in none of his thoughts. It's as though God isn't even an afterthought. The idea appears to be that this individual, they're not going to pray. They're not going to acknowledge their sin to God. They're not going to order their lives around God. Now, one of the ways that this text, for example, a verse like this keeps us humble is because we look at this text and we don't just point our finger outward at others and say, you know, I've come to faith in Jesus Christ. This is the wicked who do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But you could see the Scripture pointing right back at you and saying, don't forget who you were. Because according to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3, all of fallen humanity fits the description as those who do not seek God. Every one of us. The only reason you found God is because God found you. You weren't seeking Him. You're like, no, but I was seeking Him. I, I, I looked into this religion and that religion and that religion and I finally came to a place where I heard the gospel and I came to believe in Jesus Christ. Yes, yes, yes. That happened, but you sought Him because He first sought you. You were the lost sheep. And what happened is the good shepherd, He came, He picked you up, He put you on His shoulder, and then He brought you to Himself. You were the lost coin. You were the lost coin that was found by the God of the universe. You did not seek out God on your own. God first sought out you. It's like the passage in John, 1 John, where He says, this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. It's that same kind of dynamic. You did not seek God. God sought you. So when you read about the wicked here, the wicked in this proud countenance does not seek God. You think to yourself, wow, that was me apart from the grace of God. And the only reason I have sought God and the only reason I continue to seek God is because of the grace of God. So it humbles you. It doesn't puff you up. It reminds you that you're loved despite your sinfulness and your frailty and your fallen flesh. And sadly, even the people of God can sometimes live out a kind of partialized, practical atheism, which we ought not to. So, so, so far, just by way of reminder, this is what we've seen about the wicked. The wicked is a boaster. The wicked is a bully. The wicked is a person who is a poor judge of what is and isn't praiseworthy. And the wicked is basically a kind of practical atheist, living life without reference to God in one way or another. That brings us to verse 5. Verse 5 says, His ways are always prospering. Your judgments are far above out of His sight. As for all His enemies, He sneers at them. So this first line, His ways are always prospering, connotes how so often the ungodly can experience uninterrupted success. You're like, wow, if I look at my life, we've had this turn and that turn, this up and this down. Yet there are these people who reject Christ and do not love Christ and hate the God of the Bible or hate God's truth or ashamed of Jesus, ashamed of His words, whatever it might be. And yet they seem like their lives are on a trajectory of uninterrupted success. Well, that's the idea that the psalmist appears to be communicating here. Their ways are always prospering. 
Now, as is often the case, and this is part of the beauty of studying through the text and walking through it the way that we do, the word for prospering here can connote strong or firm or stable. It has quite a few connotations. When you look at the way in which this word is used, it has quite a few connotations within the context. You're thinking something like prospering or their steps are always firm, things like that. But as an aside, it is worth noting that the word could also be rendered as grievous. And we know from other psalms that the wicked's ways do seem to prosper with uninterrupted success. Just consider the words of Asaph in Psalm 73, though there are many other examples. But this could be reminding us here that his ways, whatever they are, are grievous because he lives life without respect to or trust in God. So the psalmist may have that in view here. In one way or another, these individuals who live without reference to God and His truth, their ways are always grievous. You might say, considering the use of the word here, that considering uh, when you consider the lives of the wicked, their ways are often prosperous and are always grievous. Now that second line, your judgments are far above out of His sight, communicates how the ungodly basically lived with no reference to God. They didn't think about divine retribution or divine accountability. They lived their lives without reference to God. It's kind of like in the way in which you and I live our lives without reference to mercury. Right? I'm not talking about mercury like mercury fillings or something like that, or mercury like that you know you found in the thermometers of old. I'm talking about the planet mercury. The planet mercury, it's not that you have anything against the planet mercury, but it really doesn't affect the way that you live. Granted, there may be one exception of somebody who says, no, the planet Mercury changed my life. Okay, if that's you, you're the exception to the rule. But generally speaking, the planet Mercury has no bearing on our lives. We just live our lives without respect to Mercury. And that's kind of how the wicked are with relationship to God. Your judgments are out of his sight. Just like Mercury's out of my sight, I'm not really thinking about Mercury too much at all. It's kind of how the wicked are with relationship to God's judgments. That third line, as for all of his enemies, he sneers at them. This speaks to how he looks at his enemies with a kind of condescending contempt. He looks down at them. He sneers at them. That word for sneers could also be rendered puffs. So it could be, it could be rendered like this guy is so strong or he perceives himself to be so strong that he puffs at his enemies. He perceives that he could merely just like, you know, blow them away just with an exhale of his breath. That could be what's connoted here in the language here. The Septuagint, interestingly, says that he gains mastery over them. So, what have we learned so far about the wicked? I go through this because it's a good way for you to kind of remember. We've seen that the wicked is a bully. We've seen that the wicked is a boaster. We've seen that the wicked has an improper valuation of what is praiseworthy and what is not praiseworthy. That the wicked is a practical atheist, often prosperous, uninterested in God's judgments and oftentimes powerful, or at least they perceive themselves to be powerful. In verse 6, the psalmist continues, He said in his heart, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. Now here we hear words that are spoken in the heart of the ungodly. We're going to see this kind of thing a few times as we go through the psalm. And it's interesting, this is in the hiccup This isn't some abrupt interruption into otherwise godly thinking. This is how such a one thinks. It's a kind of settled state. It's a conviction. One deeply held, even if not communicated. It can often be what somebody thinks in their heart if they were to search down deep enough to find it, but something that they would dare not say out loud. He has said in his heart, I shall not be moved. What an interesting phrase that is. Because you'll see that phrase mentioned a few times in the Psalter. Alexander McLaren had a message in which he dived into three times this phrase is used, and it was uh, an excellent, just an excellent way to call attention to those verses. David used this language in Psalm 16. David said, Because he, speaking of the Lord, Yahweh, is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. So David said that. But it wasn't this independence that he asserted in that moment. It was a dependence upon his relationship with God. Because Yahweh is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. I will, by the grace of God, be stable in God. 
And David had ups and downs throughout his life, but he's talking about a stability that transcends temporal stability, a kind of spiritual stability, an ultimate stability. Because Yahweh is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. That's not the kind of language we see here. This is just the wicked saying in his heart, I shall not be moved without reference to God. It's kind of a a foolish understanding of life on this earth when one is so blinded by their own self-importance, previous success, or just their own arrogance. To think that I will live this life and I will continue to be prosperous and I will not be moved is, to use language from Alexander McLaren, the mad arrogance of godless confidence. Now this is the kind of thing um, that is said of the wicked, or at least said with respect to what the wicked say, that we see in other places in the Psalms. For example, Psalm 49, verse 11 reads, Their inner thoughts is that their houses will last forever, their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. So often the case with those who do not trust in the living Christ, so often the case is that they assume that their present happy state will be their future happy state. Because there isn't a reference of God. There isn't a reference of accountability. Sometimes there's just a kind of stifling of the fear of the future. So one gives themselves over to just thinking that the future will be like the happy present. And they assume that they will not face hardship. He says, I shall never be in adversity. Um, The literal language here could speak of, I will not be moved from generation to generation that I will be exempt from calamity. So it may be that the wicked is not only thinking with respect to himself, but to his posterity. That's a possibility. I shall not be in adversity. I shall not be in calamity. I think a good New Testament counterpart to this kind of person would be the rich fool that Jesus described in Luke's Gospel. Now remember, when we walked verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke, it was important to note that you could be a poor fool, you could be a middle class fool, or you could be a rich fool. Right, So we don't just say, ah, oh, those are the rich fools. No, no, no. You can be a poor fool, a middle class fool, or you can be a rich fool. But that guy, who we often refer to as the rich fool, was the guy who built up his barns, right? He had so much that he built even more to, to house all the goods that he had for many years to come. And he was called by the God of the universe a fool. Because that very night his soul was required of him. So he lived without reference to God. He didn't anticipate any change in his present state. He thought his present happy state would be his future happy state. And there wasn't a sense of what we see in James, for instance, in James 4 of Lord willing. And what is my life but a vapor? There wasn't a sense of what Christians are taught to do in 1 Peter 4, that in the midst of suffering, Christians are to commit their souls to God as to a faithful creator and they're to continue doing good. No, 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 no sense of that prospect. Now, I think this is very important to note. This can befall even a godly man or woman. It did the psalmist. In Psalm 30, verse 6, the psalmist wrote, Now in my prosperity, that word for prosperity could be rendered as security, I said, I shall never be moved. And it appears to have been a wrong kind of statement. Not that Psalm 16, 8 kind that David said when he said, Because the Lord is at my right hand, I shall never be moved. In my prosperity, in my stability, I thought... I'm not going to be moved. This is the way it's going to be. Happened even to Job. Godly Job. Job said, and we can see this in Job 29.18, that he recalled when he had said, I shall die in my nest and multiply my days as the sand. What's the lesson for us? The believer is not to presume. The believer is to trust. We don't presume that tomorrow will be like today. We just trust our living God. We trust the Savior who loved us and gave Himself for us. We say, Lord willing, when it comes to our plans for tomorrow. We know that our outward circumstances can change, but we know that we have a stability that transcends circumstantial changes, a stability that is wrought in and founded upon our relationship to the living God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, one more verse to consider, and then we will wrap it up with a gospel call and an application for us as Christians. Verse 7, His mouth is full of cursing and deceit 
and oppression. Under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. So this speaks to how the wicked are, to use language from one commentator, unrestrained in their language. So there are certain things they say in their heart. And maybe don't say out loud. That's what we saw in verse 6. But now we see the kind of thing that comes out of their mouth. They're unrestrained in their language. The expression, his mouth is full of cursing, vividly depicts a mouth that is full of, most likely here in this context, false oaths. That's likely what is in view. So the same way somebody's mouth might be full of food, their mouths are full of cursing, what's likely meant in this context, false oaths, false swearing of one kind or another. Given the context, if you look at the forthcoming nouns, right, his mouth is full of cursing, but then what follows? Deceit and oppression. So these curses are likely acts of false swearing for the purposes of manipulation and deception. And he has no problem false swearing or making a false oath and bringing down curses upon himself, as it were, because he just lives without reference to God. So it's probably false swearing for the purposes of manipulation and deception. Now the word deceit in the Hebrew, it's in the plural, that could speak to all the treacherous deceptions that are wrought by this one. Now the deceit could take so many forms, right? It could take the form of flattery for the purpose of manipulation. It could take the form of outright lies for the purposes of oppression. It could take the form of a false oath to gain somebody's trust and then to uh, extort them and so on. This word for oppression, we saw this. Uh, it's one of the many words that's used for oppression. We saw this in a previous message. But this word's only used three times in the Old Testament. There are a lot of different words that are used for oppression. This is the Hebrew word toke. It's used three times. In Psalm 72, verse 14, it's used with reference to violence. Given the context here, the context is speech, we would think something like this. That the speech of this person begets some form of injury to those with whom they speak. Some sort of oppression, some sort of injury, whether it be extortion or some other form of uh, manipulation and trouble. The expression, under his tongue, is trouble and iniquity, may contain an allusion to a serpent whose fangs that contain venom are found under the tongue. Regardless of whether or not that is the illusion, the idea is beneath his speech. This is the big picture idea here. Beneath his speech, under it, is trouble and sin. He's lying, he's manipulating, he's got some agenda behind what he's doing. Um, They're stored under his tongue, these things. Trouble and iniquity. And they're ready to be deployed at any moment. Now again, this should not only help us to discern what is wicked, it should humble us. Because again, in Romans chapter 3, verse 14, the Apostle Paul used language from this very verse to describe how all fallen men and women are unrestrained in their speech in some way or another. Remember that he spoke about how the poison of asps is on their lips. And he describes basically the biography of all people. All of us, if we look back at our speech, particularly prior to knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, sadly even oftentimes after coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ, you can just recall to mind, think of times that you've lied. Think of times that you've flattered somebody for the purpose of manipulation. Think of times that you've cursed others. Think of times you took Jesus' name in vain or so on and used it as a curse word or whatever it might be. So this verse not only helps us to discern who the wicked are and what they do, it humbles us and it makes us thankful for the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me, we're going to stop there. I'm going to read through verses 8 through 11 so as to give a closing gospel call and then make an application for us as Christians. Verses 8 through 11 read like this. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the secret places, he murders the innocent. His eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless. He lies in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lies in wait to catch the poor. He catches the poor when he draws him into his net. So he crouches, he lies low, that the helpless may fall by his strength. He has said in his heart, God has forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see. So first, let me make the gospel call in light of this text. 
And then let me give a closing application for everyone here who is trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel call would go something like this. If you look at verse 11, you see what the wicked says in his heart. He says, again, more, more talk in the heart. God has forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see. And I want to remind you that the God of the universe has not forgotten. He does not hide his face. He does see all things with respect to the sins that are committed against Him. He knows it all. He knows it all. So every man or woman that has sinned against the living God, please know, with respect to that, He's not forgotten. If you have not come to the Lord Jesus Christ, that promise of the Lord forgetting your iniquities, I'll get to that in a moment, is not yours at this moment. The God of heaven knows even the sin that you have forgotten. He has not forgotten. If you did your best, if you went home today, I'm not recommending you do this, but maybe it would be helpful, especially if you haven't come to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you try to remember all the ways in which you've sinned against God, all the ways you've sinned with your tongue, all the ways you've sinned with your mind, all the ways you've sinned in your actions, you will have forgotten so much. You may remember a lot, but you've forgotten so much. God has not forgotten any of it. And for every person who does not come to the Lord Jesus Christ, there will come a day. There will come a day of reckoning, even as it came in the days of the flood, where the warning went out year after year after year, as Noah was a preacher of righteousness, the day of reckoning eventually came where the floods came upon the world of the ungodly, to use language from 2 Peter chapter 2. That day of reckoning will come. And every sin that you have forgotten, you will find out that the God of heaven is not forgotten. The books will be open. Every mouth will be stopped. And the whole world will become guilty before God. But let me tell you the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is this. Although you have forgotten all of the sins that you've committed, you may remember some, but you haven't haven't remembered them all. For everyone who comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, that beautiful promise from Isaiah 53, 6 can be yours. That we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And Yahweh has laid on Him, on the suffering servant, the Son of God, Yahweh has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. And if you say, God knows my sins and I'm sorry for my sin and I come to the One, the Lord Jesus Christ, who had my sin laid upon Him and was punished in my place and rose from the grave on my behalf, then the beautiful promise of the New Covenant is yours. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. So you could say, well, I know He knows everything, and I know His understanding is infinite, but with respect to my sins, the God who forgets nothing has forgotten my sin. What a promise. So I extend the invitation to you. If you haven't come to Jesus, come to the Lord Jesus, the one upon whom the iniquity was laid so that forgiveness of sins could be given. Now, for the people of God, for those who have come to Christ, I do want to remind you, as, Christian, as a Christian, it's important to remember that God cares about how we live and how we represent Christ. That's why in a place like 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter would write, But for this very reason, giving all diligence, that's an important phrase right there, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue, knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. With that being said, I've given you a description of the wicked as we've gone through these verses together. I I will do so one more time for this morning, and then I will give you the counterpart of what we ought to be like. So the description of the wicked that we saw in verses 2, essentially through 11, this morning was this, that the wicked is a bully, verse 2, that the wicked is a boaster, first half of verse 3, that the wicked is a poor judge of what is and isn't praiseworthy, second half of verse 3, that the wicked lives like a practical atheist, verse 4, that the wicked is often prosperous, verse 5, uninterested in God's judgments, still verse 5, and oftentimes powerful, also verse 5. The wicked presumes that his present state of success and ease will go unchecked. 
He is arrogantly presumptuous, verse 6. He uses his tongue to deceive, to sin, and to cause trouble, verse 7. He plans and plots of ways in which he can hurt and oppress and take advantage of people, particularly people that are vulnerable, verses 8 through 10. And the wicked thinks that God is indifferent to their sin. Therefore, Christian, I exhort you, in light of who the wicked are described to be, in light of who you are called to be, in humility, help the poor and marginalized. Be intentional about it. Whether you find them on a street corner or in front of a store, wherever you might find them, be intentional and to in humility help the poor and marginalized. That would be a contrast to verse 2. A contrast to verse 3, don't boast of your heart's desires. Make your boast in the Lord. Boast in knowing the Lord. Let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That's kind of this, this celebration of knowing the living God comes out oftentimes in prayer, for instance, or in singing. Boast in the cross. Boast in your infirmities. Boast in the work of God among others. That's a counterpart to verse 3. A counterpart to verse 4. Seek God. Know that you are accountable to God. Even as a Christian, you're going to be held to account at the beam of seat of Christ. All of your sins forgiven, but your works tested in the fire. Seek God. Know that you are accountable to Him and seek to have Him in all of your thoughts as opposed to the wicked who have God in none of their thoughts. Verse 5, don't sneer at your adversaries. Do good to them. Love them. Pray for them. Verse 6, see your stability in God's graciousness and nearness as opposed to independently saying, I shall not be moved. I shall never see calamity from generation to generation. Verse 7, let your mouth be full of blessing and truthfulness a tongue that brings peace and not one that causes trouble. Verses 8 through 10, instead of planning and plotting ways to take advantage of people, particularly those who are most vulnerable, plan and plot ways in which you can help people, particularly those who need the most help. And finally, as opposed to the wicked described in verse 11 and the way they think, always remember that God always remembers and always sees and yet at the same time has forgotten your iniquities for you who are in Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We thank you for the way in which it renews our minds and even the way in which this psalm is a reminder to us that we live in the midst of a world that is, generally speaking, hostile to righteousness. And we know, Heavenly Father, because we were hostile to righteousness. We were, by nature, at enmity with you. We were not subject to your will or your ways, Heavenly Father. And we thank you for the grace of God that came and found us and caused us, Heavenly Father, to know you and to pursue you. So, Father, in light of what we've considered this morning and our first um, consideration of Psalm 10 with Lord willing, another one next Lord's Day, We pray that you would continue to bear fruit in our lives and use this text to that end, Father. Thank you for all the truth we've considered today and the way in which you are going to use it in the lives of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.